Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Here we are on the second series on the Dura Sisters podcast. We just completed our pilot series last week. We wrapped it up by watching the pilot of Lower Decks. And we are continuing to watch and review Lower Decks episodes on our Patreon. So please go to patreon.com slash Dura Sisters podcast if you would like to hear those reviews. But in the meantime, free for all of you. We will be starting our family series. And Rihanna, will you talk a little bit about just reminding people what that's going to be? We decided to start this family series a while back because we noticed that in Star Trek, family is such an intrinsic part of every single Star Trek series. I mean, even just in Discovery, the very first season of Discovery talks so deeply about family. And And so does the second (laughs) season. Literally every season, yeah. all of the shows that we have been watching, we have talked a little bit about this in our pilot series, you know, about Cisco and his relationship with Jake. Then we thought that this would be a really essential time for us to talk about family because we are all living through these unprecedented times and a pandemic. And I feel at least that I've gotten way closer to my family since COVID-19 started. And I think that it's such an important time in our life to center ourselves around our family and remember what's really important and remember that we're all here and we're all in this together. We just wanted to talk about these ever-changing dynamics of family. And so this week, we are starting with family dynamics in the original series. Yes. So Rihanna and I, in preparation for this, have watched a ton of original series episodes and movies. So many. Yeah. Like, so many. <laughs> yeah. We've we've been trying to advertise all week. So if they would like to review before the podcast, um, we've posted lists of episodes that we've seen as well as which scenes of which movies but just to give you kind of a rundown the episodes that we saw to prepare for this were operation annihilate journey to babel yesteryear from the animated series conscience of the king the naked time as well as the opening scene from star trek 2009 i watched to where spock rejects his application to the science academy and i also Mm. saw the scene where he loses his mom when nero destroys vulcan very sad yeah and then in generations the the first scene with kirk i watched the later kirk scenes but there's no family don't watch it don't watch don't waste your time don't watch those scenes (laughs) don't do it and and the beginning of voyage home as well as we watched the entire movies of wrath of khan search for spock and i watched all of final frontier but for your purposes as a listener i think it's going to be familiar with them you do not have to see any of these episodes because i think if you know who kirk spock and mccoy and our original series cast is you're going to be able to know what's going on (laughs) we just wanted to give you that list so that if 
you want to pause the podcast right now and watch a couple, I think that it might be important to go back and then you get an even deeper understanding if you're feeling some Star Trek watching today. But if you're not, then let us talk about it. Sit back, relax, and listen to our thoughts about family. (laughs) So first off, before we dive into these wonderful characters... I wanted to ask you, Ashlyn, since we are also a family, yeah. you and I, we are sisters, and that's another reason why we chose this as our second series, because we are the Dura sisters, you know, we're the Herd sisters. We are very close siblings since pretty much I was born and since Ashlyn got a sister. Ashlyn, I wanted to ask you a bit about how our family dynamic shaped the way that you watch these episodes and movies this week. What a question. Yeah, well, as Rihanna said, it's important for you as our audience to get to know us because we are a family. And I think this series will reveal just as much about our favorite characters as it will about your hosts. (laughs) So we have a little bit of an untraditional family history. Our parents were divorced when I was five and Rihanna was three. And as we grew up, there was total split custody. So our mom and dad had exactly equal custody of us. And eventually our mom got remarried as well as our dad. And our dad and our stepmom have had a little girl who's now almost nine, which is crazy. Um, So we have an amazing half sister named Gabriella. And she actually had a cameo on this podcast. She did the outro to one of our episodes. So if you heard Gabby girl doing the outro we wanted to include her on this podcast because we've tried to stay really close with her as she grows up even though we have this pretty significant age difference between us I think I'm 16 years apart from her and Rihanna's 14 or 13 we're very close with both of our step parents as well as the family of our step parents and so whenever there's any kind of graduation or thing for our family we tend to have a lot of people show up because we have almost always had four families in our lives. Our mother's family, our father's family, our stepmom and our stepdad's family, as well as all of our grandparents. Plus, everybody in our family has had a divorce except one of our uncles. It's a crazy huge family, but I think growing up with a perspective of having divorced parents, I was always met with a combination of pity and people not quite understanding what that meant. I think especially as I went to college and I met people who have had parents who lived in the same house their whole lives and who grew up with the same set of parents (laughs) their whole Mm -hmm. lives. And for us, we moved around all the time. At one point, we had moved 11 times. And that was when I was like in high school or something. And so the idea of family, to me, is more like a village than a group of four people who have dinner together every night. To me, it's about okay, grandma's picking me up to take me to soccer practice. And then after that, dad is going to take me home because I have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. It's about teamwork and people coming together to help raise the kids and to help each other as much as possible. And it's been amazing to see that my dad's family has kept in touch with my mom's family. They're still friends. So to me, that is what family means. And when I watch Star Trek, I'm looking for the village that is helping each other. And I see that very, very strongly in the original series, almost more so than I see in the other series. And so I'm so excited in these next couple episodes to talk about 
the different types of families that we choose to create by friendships and the families that we are born into via blood. Ashlyn, wow, that was really gorgeous. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think that you're absolutely right on about it being a village and about it being communicating and talking with one another. I used to get a lot of questions of, oh, do your parents fight a lot? If they divorce, they must like hate each other. And that was just not the case with our mom and dad. They just could not be married to each other, but they still are really good friends. And I just was so happy to have parents in my life who were not fighting all the time, who were willing to talk to each other, who were splitting everything 50-50, who were as equally in my life as the other. And I think that it shaped me in a way that I got to learn so much about relationships and about how to treat people well, how to be a part of a community and of a family where you feel love from all of these different facets. You know, I mean, like Ashlyn said, we had people like our grandma would take us to school every day. And sometimes we would drive our stepdad to work. <laughs> you know, I could spend these individual time with people and then we'd have these huge Christmases and we'd have multiple Christmases, you know, one at our mom's house, one at our dad's, sometimes like three if we were going up to <laughs> step grandma's house up in the mountains, you know. I think that it also made a difference that most of our family is still in Colorado. For quite a while, we had almost every single family member of our immediate family somewhere in Colorado. And once I moved and went to college and our mom and stepdad decided to start moving around the country and exploring, that changed a bit. But it also allowed us to meet them in different areas. And so I do see this a lot with the sort of transience of the characters in Star Trek, how they're traveling all all the time. Obviously, they're on a starship. And so it's sort of like they have to flock back to family and to home, or they have to meet them in these middle distances and these middle spaces. And I just think that that dynamic also is very different than just living in a home in the same place where your family is it, because it requires more effort and more communication. And it's something that I learned pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that Ashlyn, what you said about fan found family too is something that I think we will be discussing quite often yeah. in this podcast because in not just in the original series, but in every Star Trek series, we see the ship become a family, you know, and spoilers, Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes literally ships have families on them, yeah. you know, which yeah. we'll get to later. Yeah. But I think that those bonds are so special and something that I'm very, very excited to talk with you about. Yeah. Well, and I know we will be talking about things like genetics versus outside influence. And it's just so interesting to take a look at the background of all of these characters that we love so much and think about, well, how much has my family changed me and how much has their family changed them? And I'm very excited, especially to talk about the differences between the 2009 Kelvin verse versus the yeah. prime verse, because we have a little bit of different family moments going on there. But I thank you for listening and going deeper with us with both of our with our personal lives and with these characters. So yeah. yeah. And maybe this will help you to think about your own family through a lens of Star Trek. Also, Star Trek has been a part of my family, you know? I mean, my dad was the one who introduced us. Our mom showed us the movies for the first time. Oh yeah. And 
I even want to say like we have many, many people in our family who grew up with our parents and we consider them to be aunt and uncles, even though they're not blood relatives. Mm -hmm. And we have a big, strong connection with our aunt Jenny, who's not real blood, but she loves Star Trek. I just think it's fascinating to take a look at who shapes us. So on that note, Ashlyn, would you like to dive in and start talking about our families? Yeah, let's do it. So we watched all of these episodes for a couple reasons. Obviously, we just want to know the facts. We could have read through Memory Alpha and just memorized everything that happens with the families. But I think it's important because most people, when they're watching Star Trek, are going to be watching (laughs) the episodes and not just reading Memory Alpha for fun, (laughs) even though that's what I would do. Anyway, (laughs) so we're, we're watching these movies to get the facts and also to understand how the characters interact with each other, with their families, and basically every possible thing we could suck out of these episodes and so i want to first start with dr mccoy because Mm. i think he is portrayed as the essential quote-unquote family man he's from georgia little country (laughs) doctor he's not gonna come give you a house call but that's okay we don't know a lot about mccoy because there actually are not a lot of episodes about his family if we start in the prime universe we know from the final frontier that McCoy was in his medical career. This is before he joined Starfleet. His father was sick with a disease and McCoy is treating him, treating him, but ultimately he's not getting any better and there's no cure. And so he pulls the plug. But yeah, and mind you, it's very painful. His father was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And he was basically begging to be released. And so McCoy did it. And two weeks afterward, a cure was discovered. And so right off the bat, that's pretty horrible and pretty life altering and changing to know that you are a doctor, you couldn't save your dad. And we don't ever get a mention of McCoy's mom, even in Final Frontier, in the later movies and any of the episodes, there is no mention of his mother. And so she's completely out of the picture. And so I think we can assume that he was raised by his father, David. It seems like it. And it seems from the scene we see in the final frontier that they seemed very close. You know, I mean, the way they were speaking to one another, it appeared that David trusted Leonard McCoy enough to take his pain away, but it must have just been grievously hard to do. I can't imagine. Well, and we don't see any other siblings there. There's Mm -hmm. no one to grapple over who gets the will, you know, nothing like that. It seems like it's just the two of them as it always has been. What we also know is that before McCoy joined Starfleet, he was married and he had a daughter named Joanna. What we see in Star Trek 2009, Carl Urban, who plays McCoy, says the ex-wife took the whole damn planet in the divorce. And I know that is... Oh, all I got left is my bones, which is the origin of his nickname. That is canon in the Prime universe that McCoy joined Starfleet to escape his former life, to escape the death of his father, and to escape this messy divorce and a daughter that he leaves behind. We, I don't think, ever see 
either of them, the ex-wife or the daughter, again. No, so the only mention we get of Joanna is in the animated series episode Survivor, where there's this guy who comes on board. He's got a crazy mustache. His name is Winston, and he has this like crazy fortune. And so McCoy said to him that his daughter was on Cerebus 2 when the crop failure occurred, which must be a Federation colony, is my Mm -hmm. guess. And they would have starved if it was not for Winston's personal fortune that saved the planet. And so I think for McCoy to hear about this from his daughter, like, hi, my planet is starving like I could starve to death that must have been really scary because he seems like he has a lot of distance from Joanna I wonder if they talked about it like how they had this conversation oh yeah I know this guy he saved me from starvation you know there's so many unknowns about this situation but that's literally the only time that we hear that McCoy and Joanna are even in contact but I do wonder if his ex-wife got full custody of her or like how that worked because it seems like he just doesn't talk to her at all my sense is that she did get full custody because just knowing McCoy I would be pretty surprised if he willingly walked out of his own daughter's life I just can't see him doing that seeing how yeah okay he's got you know kind of a gruff bedside manner but McCoy (laughs) is not the type of person who wants to run away and I mean he does from his father's death I don't think he's purposefully running away from his daughter and the family he's leaving behind I mean who knows how divorce lawyers are in this century but as it is today unfortunately fathers are often not seen as capable of parents as mothers are and are often not given much of a chance to get either half or full custody of a child. The system is unfortunately very biased in that when a divorce case is presented, if the wife has anything bad to say about the husband who also is seeking joint custody, it is very easily skewed towards the woman. And there's a lot of bias that women are the best parents and the best moms, which we know is not true. And there are so many situations where the child needs to be in the custody of the father. It definitely depends case by case. And sometimes they do need joint custody. And I can only think, I mean, McCoy is a character created in the 60s where I think it was almost unheard of for a man to get full custody. Yeah. And also there weren't very many divorces back then anyway. So I think we can assume that McCoy's character is kind of kept in the bubble of the 60s 70s even in the later movies we continue to not hear about joanna and so like you said i have no idea what the court system is like i assume mccoy is paying some type of child support but also joanna by the time we are later into his starfleet career she's probably a grown woman yeah at that point and so then it's just an estrangement going on but where mm-hmm. McCoy is not talking to her. And I don't know, what does this mean for McCoy serving aboard a starship? And I bring it up now because I know we're going to talk about this with Spock and with mm-hmm. Kirk that before you join Starfleet, you have your other life. And once you totally change your career, your two lives either stay separate forever or they end up melding, as we see with characters who successfully create families while they're having their Starfleet career. Right, exactly. I think that at least for McCoy's circumstance, a lot of the way he is today is based off of the traumas of his father's death. I think that 
his brashness as a doctor, his distance he puts between his patients. I mean, as a doctor, I think that you are trained to compartmentalize and have coping mechanisms. But I think McCoy's goes deeper because he had to be a son and a doctor to his father. I think that he should not have been on his father's case. I think he was too close to the situation. But also, I couldn't imagine being a doctor and not wanting to take care of my dad, you know, if he were sick. I mean, that is a bond that is so deep. And especially from our conjecture, if we think that there wasn't a mom around to also support or any siblings, that McCoy did feel this obligation and sense of duty. And something else that I think we're going to talk about a lot with family is our sense of duty and obligation to one another to keep each other safe. I think that a lot of TOS families surrounds death and coping with that. We're going to talk about this with Kirk and with Spock and McCoy, that's probably why he never gives up on his patients either. You know, I think that he's constantly looking for new ways to try and heal people or coming up with these crazy solutions right at the end that end up saving the patient. And I think that less dedicated doctors who maybe haven't had such losses in their life would just call defeat and say, I can't cure this person. I definitely agree with you 100%. And the way that this story is presented about what happened to his father in The Final Frontier is Cybok, which, you know, man, I try hard not to think about The Final Frontier as being canon. Um, But I do think that these scenes that we watch concerning family are very important. And I think definitely the best part of Final Frontier, I mean, really important part just in the series to know these characters, to see these flashbacks is a big deal if you've been watching them for a long time. What is presented to us is Cybok reaches out and chooses this memory that McCoy has and presenting it as his secret pain, as something that he has had his whole life that has been shoved down and never been healed. I do not disagree with that. I think that that is a great plot point for McCoy to recover from. And like we've mentioned, something that would change you forever. And I think McCoy has been trying to keep his distance for a long time, and it is only because he's served with these people on the Enterprise for so long that he trusts them. But there are many episodes where McCoy has a love interest or a woman is interested in him. He's not the ladies' man the way that Kirk is, Mm -hmm. but McCoy definitely gets the ladies. Whenever someone is interested in him, he does not shy away. He reciprocates, and he never thinks about his ex-wife. You know, mm-hmm. he never feels guilty and says I like there's a lot of love loss there. No, I don't think so. I think that's just something to think about, too, with McCoy is even though he is running from his failures of his past life before Starfleet, I say, quote unquote, failures because I love McCoy and they were learning moments. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no matter what he's running from, he's not completely shutting the idea down of having a family. It's not like he's saying, oh, I'll never again try to explore this. Like even in the episode for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, he considers leaving Starfleet because he's grievously ill and he thinks he's going to die soon. And he is fine with settling down and having some creature comforts before he dies. Mm -hmm. And he only is interested in pursuing a family when Starfleet is out of the question, but it seems like his first love is actually now serving aboard the Enterprise. And I'm wondering if that's because of the family that has been built there, or if it's just because he loves serving and it's a distraction, kind of like Kirk. 
Yeah. These are really good points. I think that Starfleet for some of our characters in the original series is a refuge more than it is a way to create a family. We see a lot of these characters running from some type of family dynamic or searching for something in Starfleet that their family could not provide. In a way, Starfleet is way more than just a career. No matter how much McCoy is begrudging about the transporters and space being disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence, (laughs) like he still is out there because this is his refuge and this is his home. I think that is similar to how a lot of people feel about the military in the United States. I can't speak to the military in other countries, but we have several cousins and uncles who have joined the military. And it's because I think they see themselves wanting to join something that has a higher purpose, something that's yeah. more than themselves. And that's exactly what Starfleet is. It's totally. a, as Captain Pike yells at Kirk in the 2009 movie, it's a peacekeeping armada. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think especially in these early years, even throughout Star Trek, people are joining not only because they want to be a bigger part of the future, they're joining because they have nowhere else to go. It's like how Harry and Voldemort feel about Hogwarts. (laughs) When you've you've had this troubled past, the first place that you find friendship and acceptance is what you view as home. And I think McCoy is definitely feeling that throughout his time serving aboard the Enterprise. Oh, absolutely. Wow, beautifully said. So we talked a bit about McCoy and his bonding with his father because his mother wasn't around. And I wanted to bring this to Kirk and sort of the absence of his mother that we see in Star Trek 2009. I know that the Kelvin timeline can be a little wonky and different, but it does shape our characters in fun and new ways. Maybe not fun in Kirk's case, poor poor guy. <laughs> He's done a lot in family when it comes to 2009. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Winona Kirk. But all we really get from her is in this beginning scene of Star Trek 2009, where we see little Kirk driving his dad's car. And his stepdad, Frank, gets on the Nokia <laughs> intercom, which cracks me up. Yeah. And he says, like, you get your, you know what, back here. You think that you could act this way just because your mom's off planet. And so I wonder how much his mom sort of just leaves him with Frank while she's off planet. There's this really beautiful deleted scene that they took out of Star Trek 2009 that involves George Kirk, his brother, and get to see Frank and how verbally abusive he is. I don't know if he's physically abusive, but you can definitely tell even from this deleted scene and from the scene in the movie that makes the cut that it's just, it seems like a very awful home life for Kirk. And no wonder he's ready to just take this car and get out of there. And he's trying to get away from this life because his mom doesn't seem like she's around. At least here, she's off planet. She doesn't seem to know about what happens while she's gone with Frank and doesn't know that he's abusive. Or if she does, she just doesn't do anything about it. And so maybe I'm not giving her enough credit because we don't know enough about her. I know we see her in the beginning of 2009 losing her husband, you know, while she's giving birth. It's got to be very traumatic. But I just, part of me wonders if she kind of blames Jim for the death of the dad. Is it the dad named George too? Yeah, George. Yeah, they're all named George. Like, is there some sort of tumultuous dynamic in there? So I just was wondering what you thought about this, Ashlyn. 
I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> about Kirk and yeah. his family, especially in this Kelvin timeline, because obviously we see this very heroic death of his father. And you're totally right. We don't know anything about Winona Kirk, except that she's sad that her husband died, which, yeah. Right. yeah. I, I, I almost always cry when I see that scene because it's very impactful and yeah. it's done so well. You Absolutely. really feel the stakes. Before I saw that deleted scene that you're talking about, I always thought that the angry, abusive man on the phone with Kirk in the beginning was his stepdad. I never thought that it was his uncle. In the deleted scene, it actually says Uncle Frank. Uh, because to me, uncle makes me feel a lot better about the situation than if she remarried this a horrible person, you know, who's being yeah. horrible to the boys. My bad, guys. I think it shows my assumptions, you know, that he just would be a parental figure and not this sort of no, but I'm, figure. I'm glad we're talking about it because it, it changes it. Because my whole life until last night, I thought it was his stepdad too. But it makes a lot more sense if she has not remarried and she's living with her brother. Kirk is doing nothing <laughs> except running his father's car off cliffs. This is not a good environment for Kirk to thrive in. He needs action. He needs a city. Examining what happens in the Kelvin verse, I think, says a lot about what's happening and can inform us about what's happening in Prime verse with Kirk. Yes. Because a major difference is that Kelvin Kirk was born on the USS Kelvin the day his right. father died. And Prime Kirk was just born in Iowa. And so that tells me that she was induced early by panic. Or they heard about this long-range lightning storm in space and the Kelvin was ordered to go investigate it. And she just came with George for whatever reason. I, I just, I don't know exactly what happened, but it does make Kirk being born on a ship in the middle of that crisis extremely epic and yeah. kind of an amazing entry for this mm -hmm. character. And it also confirms that in both universes, Jim Kirk was inspired by his father to join Starfleet because in the Prime universe, Spock Prime says to him later in 2009, you often spoke of your father as the reason for joining Starfleet. Yeah. And he proudly live to see you become captain of the enterprise and so Ashley, just so you know that was like verbatim great job <laughs> um <laughs> it's because i have that movie memorized yeah same. It, yeah it's a historic movie in my own timeline um yeah, I'm telling our listeners that she didn't even look at her notes to say that exact quote <laughs> what i'm saying is that we know nothing about winona really except yeah. that her father's name was Jim. And it's, mm -hmm. it's even James. I mean, his full name is James T. Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Tiberius was his father's father. Now, something else I thought was interesting because I noticed when I saw that deleted scene yesterday from 2009, Jim Kirk calls his brother George. Mm -hmm. But when we watched Operation Annihilate, he's calling him Sam. Yeah. I thought he had multiple siblings or something going crazy. Because the only thing that's different between the two timelines is his father's dead in one of them. And so how right. would his older brother's name be different if it wasn't impacted mm -hmm. by the death of George Kirk? Hmm. It turns out that his brother's name is George Samuel Kirk. Oh, so it is the same guy. And Jim Kirk is the only one who calls him Sam in the Prime oh. universe. He's the only one because it's a cute little brother bond. 
So that's really sweet that he has a little nickname for George. It's it is sweet. And it tells me that in the Kelvin universe, they didn't have the same type of bond or that George Kirk, his brother, they kept using his name even more so because his father had passed away. Mm -hmm. And so now it's his name becomes kind of a tribute to George Kirk Sr. And so Kirk would never have called him Sam. I mean, so these are very small details, but it does change how we look at Kirk in the prime universe. So if we shift to that, we know that he grew up with, we assume, both his mother and his father, though we know nothing about Winona Kirk in the original series and hardly anything about George Kirk, except that he served in Starfleet. And we know that his brother was living on Devar with his wife and son, Peter, Peter Kirk, which is Jim's nephew. And the wife's name is uh, Aurelin. It seems like a Federation colony. Yes. That episode, Operation Annihilate, really shows a lot to me about Kirk's relationship with his family. Because in the first, I think, 10 minutes, we see George Kirk die on screen. And Kirk has a very controlled reaction. He is clearly upset, but he holds it in and he just continues with his work as a captain. He quickly transitions from he is to he was. And he's already using that past tense language. And Spock, he goes to try to comfort Kirk, but he totally brushes it off. He doesn't even allow Spock to comfort him. And he's seeing his sister-in-law go through this disease because they've all been attacked by the pancakes. Um, Those pancakes that look like pancakes. Causing the mass insanity. Yeah. And Kirk is very upset. I think that his nephew is sick as well. He's It's mentioned by McCoy that he's very weak. Mm-hmm. So later in the same episode, when Spock is too attacked by a pancake, and then Spock, his sister-in-law, and Peter all in sickbay, he's most worried about Spock, to yeah. be frank. He is really worried about Spock to the point where McCoy says, Jim, you have to save everyone. There's millions of lives down there. You can't just be focusing on these three up here in sickbay. And I thought it was pretty surprising that McCoy had to remind Kirk of that, but not until Spock got sick. I was thinking deeply about this scene that the fact that Kirk, he barely gets time to grieve Sam slash George Kirk. And then Aurelin, his stepsister, dies in sickbay not long after. And he watches her die. So that is also very traumatic, heavily, deeply traumatic. But again, he is focused on his command and on fixing this problem because I think this is the only way Kirk knows how to keep going. But when someone like Spock is in danger, he just shuts down. And so I do find that really fascinating in part of me that thinks that they are in love (laughs) makes total sense, you know, that this is his partner. And even if you just see it as a friendship that's so deep, this brotherly bond that they have, I think that Kirk has become so much closer to Spock than he ever has with you know his brother and his family. That is telling. In many ways, I think it comes down to distance. Some people are not very good at keeping up relationships at a distance. We all know people who just like don't really reach out a lot if you're not like directly near them, you know, which is totally fine because that's how some people function in relationships. But I think that this is how Kirk is with his family. Like he never got close enough to then maintain a sort of long distance relationship with his family. I mean, he knows that they're there and he's, of course, like struck by their deaths. 
But I think that because he's living in close quarters with Spock, Spock is his confidant, his friend, they're always together that I think that it's a deeper blow when Spock is injured because he sees him all the time. This makes me wonder, what do, I mean, now they're dead, but what did George and Arellan and Peter talk about when they talked about Jim? Because we see Picard, which we'll talk about in the next episode of the pod, that your legacy precedes you when you're this important of a figure in Starfleet. And Operation Annihilate is the last episode of season one. And Mm -hmm. so Kirk has at least been a captain for a year. And Mm -hmm. he's already had very impressive deeds done in Starfleet. And so he's considered a successful person you know he's got the ship he's got the crew he's literally saving the galaxy every couple days yeah and so i do think that creates a huge distance even Mm -hmm. though they have a physical distance between them i think there's an emotional distance too even though we don't really know what george kirk is doing for work i think he is in starfleet though i i I, I know this is a colony that is being affected by the alien species but i think that it kind of creates a barrier between you and your family similarly i had friends who would go to basic training and you know to prepare to be joining the military and they would come back and tell me you just don't understand the type of close friendships that you make in there because mm-hmm. you're with people who are going through the same thing and you have to run the same amount of miles together and work out the same amount and mm-hmm. go through and have these experiences with people that you can never imagine having with your family back at home. And it's similar to when people go to war. I mean, mm-hmm. people have no idea what happens in war. And I think Starfleet has a lot of similarities and people are going through similar traumas. So all of this is just to say that Kirk clearly has a much, much tighter relationship with Spock and McCoy specifically and with his greater crew than he does with even his own brother. Yeah, And as much as it pains him to see him die and to see basically his whole family die... It's harder for him to have Spock be blind or almost pass away in this episode. Yeah, Ashlyn, thank you for saying all of that. I think that it does make a big difference when you're living this totally opposite life to family. It reminds me a bit of in Amok Time, T'Pring's reason for not wanting to marry Spock was that he was too renowned and becoming Mm -hmm. too famous in Starfleet. He's the son of an ambassador. And so similarly, she did not want to marry him because she did not want to be associated with that kind of legacy and that kind of legend. And, you know, might have also had something to do with his his genetics, but he's racist <laughs> little. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I think it could play in a factor. But I think that that does change families a lot. And there's no way I can relate to our family members who have seen combat or have even been in the military. I feel similar kind of distance where I just don't even understand their lives and what they went through. And so it's a very good point to bring up that that's probably where most of the distance comes with Kirk. I think you can easily have a successful relationship with your family and be in Starfleet or and be in the military. Just because you're apart from someone for a long time does not necessarily mean that you grow out of touch with them. That's a choice that you make. And Mm -hmm. Kirk was not making the choice to keep in touch. And I'm very concerned about what happens to Peter (laughs) at the end of this episode because he survives, we assume, the alien species. But 
I don't think we ever know in that episode, you can probably look up on Memory Alpha, but I don't think we know again what happens to Peter Kirk after this now, episode. He's now an orphan and yeah. they don't have family members on the ship. So it's not like Kirk could take him under his wing. And I don't think Kirk would want to because he's not much of a parental and this guy. isn't this isn't the Enterprise D where the ship is full of family members. This yeah. is a long range science slash combat vessel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not safe for children. Not safe for children. And so I wonder, like, did he go back to the, did the colonists take care of him? You know, what happened with that? It just is very shocking that they sort of just dropped that plot. It seems to me, like with David. Peter is sort of this plot point to further Kirk and further that character of Kirk. And I just don't think it's very fair to the characters themselves that they're just sort of means to an end to build another character. But sometimes that's how it works in writing. Yeah, that's what you got to do sometimes. It's not as satisfying, but that's how it is. <laughs> right, exactly. This episode, Operation Annihilate, really shows how difficult it can be to be a Starfleet captain sometimes because mm -hmm. you have to always compartmentalize and you have to put your grief aside to get the job done. And we see Kirk doing this constantly. He has a horrible track record of losing family members. It's very tragic and something that we can now talk about when we go to his son, David, in the movies. It's really hard to see Kirk go through losing family, but also incredible to see how he keeps going regardless like well, i do not understand how he can do that i could not so a big part back to the star trek 2009 and I, a little bit of a, a precursor to when we talk about spock spock is emotionally compromised in that movie and yeah. he admits it when his whole planet's destroyed and his mother right. dies right in front of him i kept thinking during operation annihilate that kirk was going to become emotionally compromised right but that is not who Kirk is. And even if he was, he would never show it. And I think Kirk really represents the sometimes toxic masculinity. But I also think in this case, it's not toxic masculinity. He's literally doing anything he can to get through this day. And yes. especially when Spock becomes injured, that means that even your first officer is not able to do their duty. And in this very stressful situation, it's actually similar to Journey to Babel, where you have the captain and the first officer are basically incapacitated, Kirk with emotion, Spock with pancake, alien right. juice, and, yeah. and Scotty can't take over, you know? <laughs> yeah, and... So it's a tricky situation, and I think Kirk does the best that he can with it. I am impressed, like you say, yes. Rihanna. I am impressed, and it shows that he definitely has longevity in his career, that he's able to push through this yeah. very, very emotionally intense day that he has. Well, and something I want to ask about Kirk's motivations, because in 2009, we see that he is motivated to join Starfleet because, as Pike said, father was a captain of a starship for 12 minutes and he saved 800 lives. I dare you to do better. So, you know, Pike is definitely pushing Kirk and sort of being a parental figure in this moment. But I think that Kirk's motivations, even in 2009, even though it's an alternate universe, are still the same, that he's motivated by loss and motivated by his love and passion for people. I, I'm just wondering if you think that he joined Starfleet 
you know, I mean, he says like, I joined it off a dare, which is not really true. I think that he's saying that to try to protect himself from why he actually joined. I think that he joined out of a combination of guilt and determination. And I think that a lot of Kirk is that combination. And I'm just wondering if you agree or disagree. He joined, I think, mostly because of his father in the Kelvin verse. I think it is different in the prime universe. I think in Kelvin verse, he is trying to discover himself. And because he's lost his father, he doesn't have a role model. And I think it's kind of orphan syndrome. We see it in Harry Potter a lot too. And it's just natural. If you don't know who your parents are, of course you want to figure it out. And because yeah. if discovering who they are is also means it helps to discover who you are. And so I think he is definitely driven to be like his father. And I think in the original series, he is driven by his need to prove himself. Mm-hmm. And I think there's subtle differences, but they're definitely different. Yes. And I think each reason for joining affects the, his longevity of his career in different yeah. ways. We see in the Kelvin verse that just two movies after in Star Trek Beyond, he's already tired of serving in Starfleet and tired of the constant drama and just being in the stress and pressure of being in deep space constantly. Mm-hmm. But yet in the prime universe, when we see him talking to Picard in Generations, he says, never let yourself get promoted Never let yourself leave that captain's chair because it's everything you have and it's the only chance to make a difference. And and so to me, that's a Kirk who just wants to be in Starfleet his whole life. And so I think- Because the guilt isn't there. Sorry, I just, you know, is not as present. Yes, and I think the motivation is important because in Beyond, and I think at the end of the movie, Kirk does realize he wants to be in Starfleet because of the people around him and because yeah. of himself and not because, because of, yeah. Yeah, not, not because of his father anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that is a more powerful motivation. The need to further yourself and to improve yourself is just stronger overall if you really yeah. follow it through rather than trying to be in the shadow of somebody else. You can only sustain your guilt for so long as a motivator. And every year on his birthday in the Kelvin timeline, McCoy comes to him and he says another year older and Kirk goes, yeah, a a year older than he ever could be, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think that that guilt was following him for so long that I'm really glad that he like was able to sort of let it go in the end of beyond. Well, and I love that you brought up his birthday because even his normal birthday in the prime universe Mm -hmm. is always sad on his birthdays. (laughs) That's just a trope. In Wrath of Khan, he has a birthday. One of my favorite Mm -hmm. scenes where McCoy gives him the glasses because he's getting older and Kirk is just upset because he is getting older and it's another year closer to retirement, another year further away from his glory days on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Then in this movie, we find out that Kirk has a son. Yes, David. David, yeah. <laughs> From Dr. Carol Marcus, who she never appeared, to my knowledge, in the original series. It was probably... I think she? she did not appear, no. But there is a reference. Actually, the first ever episode of the Dura Sisters podcast is about uh, the cage and where no man has gone before. In the episode with Gary Mitchell where no man has gone before Gary references a a blonde that Kirk used to hang out with and Kirk says oh I almost married her and that is kind of the fandom's choice to to think that that's Carol Marcus and so I think that she was someone he knew in Starfleet yes absolutely cadets yeah 
Yeah. And so the first impression David gets of Kirk is just the things that Carol has said about him. He calls Kirk an overgrown Boy Scout. And Carol said, I knew Jim Kirk, and he was never a Boy Scout. So right away, we're back into this reputation of Kirk being the ladies' man. Apparently, they didn't have birth control, (laughs) Um, even in this century. I I mean, when it goes through, it goes through. But I do like the fact that David and Carol are together, at least, and that they have each other as a family unit. Yeah, and it seems like they're a good team and that they have a good connections. I do like to see that because there's a lot of tropes about absent fathers in many movies and TV shows and how they function differently. I think that it's a good twist to see it from the other perspective. Like we don't know about David until this movie. We know about Kirk since the dawn of time. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see Kirk coming back into his son's life, trying to reconcile with him. Yeah, I think that Kirk still seems to really care for Carol. I mean, when he was talking with McCoy about it, he says he doesn't want to reopen any old wounds. So it sounds like it was a really difficult time in his life romantically with Carol. Sounds like they had a kind of a falling out. But Kirk still seems to really care. And I just liked seeing that gentler side of him that wasn't just like, oh, another hot lady that I can bang. You know, it was it was more like there's Carol. She sort of seems like the one that got away. What do you think about that? Yeah, I actually think it's very similar to McCoy's situation, except we just never knew about it until this movie. Messy breakup and a child is left behind. I was pretty surprised when I found out that Kirk knew the whole time. I think there's a line in there that he tells Carol, you told me to stay away, so I never came around. And I think in the future, hopefully people are more accepting of people who just have one parent or, you know, single single moms. Obviously, she was able to provide and give David a great life if they're both scientists together and working so hard on this potentially galaxy-changing invention. (laughs) For real. Very smart people. But I do think it's interesting that Kirk and McCoy are friends, and I think that they're bound by this. They both have similar situation, and so that's kind of what I'm thinking about now is how that strengthens the friendship between Kirk and McCoy because they both have this past that they're running from together, and they both have made such excellent careers for themselves. Yeah, definitely. And going back a bit when Carol was telling Kirk that she wanted him to stay away from David and from their life and everything, I think that Carol has every right to dictate that, but I was a little bit hesitant to champion her for dictating for her son. I think that David should have had more say in whether he wanted to meet Kirk. I don't know if she was strictly forbidding him or he just wasn't interested. It seems like in the beginning, at least, there's a lot of resentment between David and Kirk. David's like outright attacking him and Kirk's like hitting him back. It's not a very good introduction for these family members. There is a lot of resentment between them. But as Star Trek does best, times of strife and struggle bring them together. And that's one of the key points of Star Trek is that families are often brought together by these crazy, dangerous situations, you know, that then make them realize what's truly important. Yeah. What happens at the end of Wrath of Khan and Kirk's relationship with David is really beautiful. And David Mm -hmm. has a quote after, of course, Spock is killed. Oh, God, can't even (laughs) talk about it. David comes in and he says that he was wrong about Kirk and that he's proud to be his son. And I think that's a nice transition 
that we get in David's perspective that he finally sees who Kirk really is. Underneath all the layers that we put on, I think even when we think about our parents, we have a very different perspective than who they really are because we know them in a different way than who the public knows them as. And I think he was getting these stories from Carol because she has, I think, a lot of resentment towards Jim as well. And so he's only hearing one side and he's not really getting to see his father as he is. And so it's very important for them, I think, that they had this moment, especially after a piece of Kirk's family had just died. Like Spock was a part and continues to be a part of Kirk's life so deeply that I think it was important that there was a repair of this father-son relationship because Kirk needed something to get through these losses. And, you know, Spock may not be a family of blood, but he's definitely Kirk's family. I respected David a lot in this scene. You can tell he grows up a lot, just the hour or two of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Then the next movie, David is slaughtered mercilessly. Yeah, by a poorly written Klingon. That didn't need to happen. No. But it, again, shows me that family motivates us to be better and it motivates us to keep our family safe. And I think that... Also, family can incite a lot of revenge in us. You know, if something happens, this is like another cornerstone of Star Trek, especially is that someone messes with a family member and immediately the character's on the warpath. The ship is being threatened by Khan. You know, Kirk's all, Khan, I'm going to get revenge for you trying to hurt my crew and my family. And we see it with David. We see this vengeful side come out of Kirk that is so fiercely protective of his family. We don't see it as much in Operation Annihilate because there's not really an enemy to hate. The pancakes. The pancakes are the enemy, but like it's harder to show vengeance on a pancake than it is on a Klingon, you know? And so it just brought out a side of Kirk that is a little scary. And I think we all have that side. We just don't know it because thinking about losing a family member in such a way would be devastating regardless of your connection with them. And that's where, again, family is so intrinsically tied with duty. Well, and it really complicates things with the Federation and the Klingon Empire, honestly, because in the next couple of movies, they use Kirk's hatred of the Klingons as a foil for a lot Mm. of these plots, especially in Undiscovered Country. It is known by the Klingons that Kirk hates Klingons because they murdered his son. And I have always felt that even though Kirk and David had such a short relationship, I never really bought that he was so furious at the Klingons for doing this. I know the Klingons are a really easy group to hate because, especially in the original series, they have all these issues with them. But as we know from the rest of Star Trek, Klingons are awesome. Yeah. And (laughs) Kirk, I know him as a character that he's able to rise up over his hatred, but- Because it's his son who he never knew, I think he's holding on to a lot more emotions than we're giving him credit for because mm-hmm. he's he tries to portray himself as not having too many emotions yeah. like mm-hmm. his friend Spock. Yep. And I think he's mad at the Klingons for taking away the time that he never got. And so I think this touches on something else. You really regret the things you don't say. Yes. And especially oh, so to true. family. Yeah. I think that's that's what causes so much pain and strife. And that's the same thing with McCoy. It's just the loss of the time that you would get with them later on. Yeah, that's so true. And then he uses it as fuel for his hatred because hatred, I think, is easier to hold on to than pain and grief. 
Yeah. You know, it's a more baser emotion. And so you don't have to go as deep to feel it. Yeah. And that's why I think a lot of these characters choose revenge and choose hate over pain. I mean, even in Star Trek Into Darkness in the Kelvin timeline, when Spock sees Kirk die, he goes on this crazy rampage to get to Khan because I think it's easier than just letting himself cry and grieve. Ashley, great points. All yeah, around. no, and you too. I also just want to mention how even though it's sad that David dies, it is cool that he sacrifices himself for Savick because yeah. there is a very intense scene where the Klingon, I think it's Christopher Lloyd also, <laughs> is this Klingon, yeah. you know, who's Doc from Back to the Future. So all I could see when I, this Klingon <laughs> is saying, oh, kill any of them, I don't care. And all I see is, you know, like, Marty, hey, like, Marty jump in the time machine. Uh, yeah, we gotta get the power converters. Yeah, totally. that's Star Wars. But anyway, it is a very intense scene when he tells the Klingon Klingon, Christopher Lloyd tells his subordinates, oh, just kill any of them because it's high stake. This Klingon's yeah. either going to kill Kirk's son or Savick, who's become an important part of this crew, or Spock. Spock, <laughs> we just got back. Yeah. And he's a child who can't even speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think everything that we've talked about with David and everything that we've talked about with Kirk, I just have to bring up again that Spock is overshadowing all of it. And McCoy, because they are the real family that Kirk chooses. And no matter who he discovers along the way is a part of his family, he's never going to put in the effort. We never even see Carol Marcus again. She does not appear in Search for Spock. There's no scene of Kirk writing a letter or uh, sending a visual message or hologram to her saying i'm sad our son died carol you know nothing and there's no funeral for david and there's no carol ever again there's also no body to bury so that's gonna be hard that he is is sort of left on his failed experiment planet like that's kind of (laughs) dark but anyway but they do set it up that it was his own fault. He used proto-matter when right. he shouldn't have. He should have just been patient. That's a lesson to us all. Don't right. use proto-matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know Kirk carries this pain, but it's a pain about lost time. I don't think he actually misses David. He just misses this. He's sad that he never really got to have a family in the more traditional way. But when I watch the scenes from Final Frontier... There is no flashback scene for Kirk. There's no scene where we see Kirk's deep pain that Cybok chooses. And it's because Kirk chooses to not deal with it. And I don't know if this is just like eggheadedness where Kirk just doesn't want to go to therapy. <laughs> but I also think it's just who he is that he rolls with whatever he's been given. And like he says in the movie, he uses his pain. I need my pain. That's what I found interesting about the scene in Final Frontier where Cybok is showing both McCoy and Spock family aspects that were their deepest pain. But then when he tries to show Kirk, he says, pain, they make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. And that essentially is Kirk. You know, he has always used it as a way to keep trying harder and working harder to save as many people as he can. He sort of does have a saving people thing as Harry Potter does. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't even allow for people to dig deeper into his family because he needs that pain to keep going. And that's very different than the other two of our main characters. I also think that Kirk doesn't have really a deep pain around his family I think the deep pain he has is about losing Spock a couple of movies previously. Because there's that scene where 
Savick had asked if Kirk had ever actually lost anybody because they're talking about the Kobayashi Maru and Kirk has always cheated death. He doesn't believe in no-win scenarios and he cannot cheat death this time, Spock. But he does anyway because Spock still comes back to life, which shows that Kirk has never dealt with a death that's so personal. Yes, he's dealt with a lot of family death, but like we said, he's never been that close to his family and Spock is his family. He's his brother. He calls him that quite often. And at the end of Final Frontier, Spock saying, I lost a brother. Kirk said, I lost one too, but then he came back. And at first I was like, oh, cool. He's talking about like Sam from Operation Annihilate. Wow, what a throwback reference and then nope he's talking about spock so he literally doesn't even think about the actual brother he's lost he can only think about spock and that grief and that's just very telling about kirk yep that line said it all to me that made me think uh yeah for kirk it's not about his family and that's what makes him so different from kelvin kirk is he's all about family yeah and he's searching for this family he knew he had one thing I do want to add before we transition here is we see Sarek a couple of times during Search for Spock, and we're about to talk a lot about him once we find Spock <laughs> after our after the search here. Sarek says to Kirk, uh, or no, 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 Kirk says, what I've done, I had to do. And Sarek says, at what cost? Your ship, your son? And Kirk says, if I hadn't tried, the cost would have been my soul. And this is all for Spock. So again, Spock Kirk is, is just saying, yeah. I lost my son, I lost my ship, but I got Spock back and that's what matters to me. Yeah, he really cares about the needs of the one, the one being Spock. Because <laughs> Spock is number one. <laughs> I think if anything's consistent about Kirk, it's that he loves Spock. <laughs> yeah, I go to the ends of the earth for him. Just as we see Spock will as well go to the ends of the earth for Kirk. One other thing, a quote that I really liked from the end of Final Frontier is McCoy says, I thought you said men like us don't have families. And Kirk says, I was wrong. So I think that ultimately sums up the fact that Kirk has finally found his family within this crew. And he was wrong. He said, I did find my family. It's you two. And that just makes me very happy and warm inside. In Final Frontier, basically all the family themes are about the trio being yeah. a family. And in the beginning of the movie, when they're camping all together, Kirk says that other people have family bones, not us. I thought it was really sweet that after Kirk says this, he looks really down and like, let's talk about something else. And that is when Spock decides to make a marshmallow for him. And that's when he wants to sing. And so I think it also shows just how tight they are as friends and how well they know each other. And even Spock, even after he's gone through his emotional transformation because he's died and come back, he, yeah. can, he still knows when Kirk is upset because they are brothers. They're more than brothers. They're soulmates. Well, and can I say too that I think we talk often about Kirk and Spock's relationship, but I think that McCoy and Spock's relationship grows so much after the Wrath of Khan. He now has a Katra of Spock in his head. Yeah. That, if you don't get close to somebody by then, you're going to once <laughs> you have their Katra. Yeah. He even said at one point, I don't think I can lose you again to Spock. I can't remember when that was, but I just found that to be another really special moment to see the two of them. They really did love their bickering sessions and their talks on philosophy and science and all throughout the original series. And even in Operation Annihilate, when Spock gets blinded, McCoy is devastated. Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up. I totally agree. McCoy puts on this hard, tough exterior like he doesn't care about anyone. But 
he is very passionate about his friends and he's very, very thoughtful when it comes to them. In this movie, in Final Frontier, Spock literally chooses his crewmates over his half-brother, over Cybok. Again, over blood. Yeah. Yeah. So before we jump into Spock, Ashlyn, I thought we could talk briefly about the moment in Wrath of Khan where we only really get to see Scotty have one family member and they immediately die. The thing that's sad, Ashley and I were talking about this when we were making this plan for our family series of the original series is that a lot of our other crew members don't get a lot of mention of family. And so that is why we are predominantly focusing on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy because they have the most information about family. But we do get tiny hints from Scotty and from Sulu. And so I thought we could talk about them a little bit. Yeah. So this scene, Scotty brings his nephew, his dead nephew, up to the bridge and then just like takes him down to sick bay. <laughs> so I don't know what his grief process was there, but it seemed really rough. Maybe he was angry at Kirk and was showing him, look what you've done. This crew is not experienced enough to deal with all this con BS <laughs> or what. I don't know. What do you make of that scene? Well, so first of all, you wouldn't even know that that's Scotty's nephew unless you've seen the director's cut of Wrath of Khan Mm -hmm. and if you've watched the deleted scenes. Because in the original cut, the one you see on uh, CBS All Access is, I think it's either on there. I don't think it's on Hulu anymore, but I don't know. Depending on when you're listening to this, it could be on some future (laughs) (laughs) internet site. Treknet or something. <laughs> it's not clear at all that that's Scotty's nephew. It's something that is in the novelization and in the deleted scenes that Scotty's nephew is joining engineering and he sadly dies when Khan attacks the ship. It's really weird that Scotty brings him up to the bridge, especially yeah. when you don't know that it's his nephew and you're like, why is Scotty bringing this random guy? <laughs> poor guy yeah so that's sad and that's all we know about scotty's family yeah and then kirk is kind of brash and just like okay scotty get back to work and like (laughs) it's just a lot and i don't know i think again we're seeing the fact that so much of family is tied to grief and death in the original series and it can just be really hard to be in starfleet when you have family members in starfleet because you lose them a lot and it's It's very hard yeah. Well, yeah. and luckily, as far as we know, Sulu has no deaths in the yeah. family. We don't know too much about Sulu's family, but we know from beyond that he has a husband and a daughter. And we actually, in Generations, we get to see his daughter in action. We meet Demora Sulu in Generations when Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty come aboard the Enterprise B to send it on her maiden mission. Yeah. What I found really interesting about this scene is that Chekhov seems to be the only person who knows about Demora's existence. I mean, Kirk is floored by this. He's like, what now? Like, who's this? Kirk asks Scotty. He turns to Scotty and he says, when did Sulu have time to make a family? I didn't know he even had a family. And Scotty says, when something's important, you make the time. And so I think that for Sulu, that was important. And that's not very common for Starfleet officers, at least in this era before family ships became a thing. I guess maybe they were a thing by generations. Yeah, I I think so. I think that it's just a really lovely moment that we get to see her all grown up. And Chekhov seems very proud of her. Like we know how close Sulu and Chekhov are. And so I just sort of imagine Chekhov was invited over family dinners when they were back on Earth. Also, Kirk says a really lovely thing. He says, it wouldn't be the Enterprise without a Sulu at the helm. Which yeah. just shows generationally, which generations, haha, 
<laughs> it shows generationally that family is important. And I think it's really interesting that Demora decided to follow in Hikaru's footsteps. I think that that's really cool. Actually, we don't even get to see Sulu in this scene, sadly, interacting with his daughter, but we get some proximity. Yes. A couple things about this scene in Generations. So... First off, poor Sulu gets really the worst writing in the movies, I think. He really doesn't have that much to do. My favorite scene of Sulu is when he says, don't call me tiny in Search for Spock when they're breaking McCoy out. But Sulu doesn't do too much. I think he probably has less than 20 lines in all these movies. The only lines I remember him saying are, it's the Excelsior, I'm hoping for that. And we know as the movies go on that Sulu is getting promoted. At one point, he is the Commander Sulu. I think maybe even in Voyage Home, he's a commander at that point or or Final Frontier. Mm-hmm. And so you see that Sulu is really climbing the ranks and he wants his own ship. And I, I don't know for sure, but I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure George Takei was the one pushing for that, for the character of Sulu, because Nichelle Nichols talks about how in order to have your character do something, you really had to talk to the writers and ask mm-hmm. them for something to do. And so I think George Takei was really in communication with the writer saying, I want to be a captain of the Excelsior. And we see him become yes. captain. But I think it is great and so cool that his daughter is uh, on the helm and that she is following in his footsteps as a pilot. We see in, of course, and beyond that he does have a a daughter at that point that he's visiting. Just some behind the scenes facts um, about the specific scene in Generations is that it was written for Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, Mm -hmm. not Scotty and Chekhov to be with Kirk there. But Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly did not want to appear in the movie because they thought that their time had ended. And Leonard Nimoy didn't like the script and didn't like his parts for Spock in the movie. I think they were going to be involved in the Nexus scenes later and neither of them liked how it was going and so they just refused to show up and like if i read the script in generations i would not want to be a part of it either yeah (laughs) exactly despite the duras sisters being in that movie that's the best part (laughs) just kidding (laughs) yeah those are the only good parts anyway yeah but so you can tell very easily that Chekhov and scotty's lines were written for mccoy and spock because it is awkward how james Doohan delivers those lines they were meant for mccoy they're way sassier than what scotty normally says i thought he was being like a big sass monster in this one i'm like what is yeah no it's because those are mccoy's lines and then Chekhov has the informational lines because those are supposed to be spocks Um, and honestly i mean i read between the lines that sulu and Chekhov are together or were together at some point you know and so it's hard for me to imagine that Chekhov is not closer with demora you know anyway That's literally all I have to say about Sulu and all of the original series families, except for Spock. Yeah. I think that one more thing I'll say that's a bit of a shame is that we literally know nothing about Uhura and her family, even like she's not even given a first name. Ashlyn was saying this earlier, like Mm -hmm. when we were ranting on the phone earlier, like she was saying that she's not even given a first name until Star Trek 2009. And so it's just... A thing that does frustrate me about the original series is that the often people of color are given less screen time and less writing time. And it's just as frustrating because I would really love to hear about Uhura's family and where she grew up and if she had any siblings, but we can only guess. 
Even in 2009, we don't know anything. Nothing. We know literally nothing about Ahura. So again, I'm calling CBS and I'm saying, Alex Kurtzman, where's my Uhura spinoff? I'm waiting for it. (laughs) Yeah, please. Are we ready to talk about Spock? Because I've been waiting my whole life to talk about This is going to be a big conversation because Spock is eternal. (laughs) Yeah, I think I took like over 15 pages of notes on Spock. The first time that we get to meet Spock's family on the original series is in the episode Journey to Babel, which has always been one of my very favorite original series episodes. It's iconic. It's got everything. It's got murder. It's got intrigue. It's got family drama. And it's got Kirk roles. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, and Kirk chops. Oh yeah, both of them. Wow. And Kirk stabs. <laughs> I did see this meme the other day that was like Kirk literally introduces Spock to his own father. <laughs> so I was cracking up when I saw that. So this opening scene, they're ready to greet the party coming in on the ship, and Spock's teaching McCoy how to do the live long and prosper sign. And then Sarah comes in, does not even salute Spock with the Vulcan salute but deliberately turns to McCoy and salutes him to show, I think, his disapproval of Spock. Literally within the first five minutes of this episode, you're already getting some serious sass from Sarek here. This is some deep stuff that's happening right away and something that Kirk and McCoy seem to notice, especially when Sarek openly says he wants a different guide to take him to his quarters. He doesn't want Spock. And that must crush Spock to, first of all, feel belittled in front of his captain and McCoy and to feel like his father doesn't even want him around. It's just oof. Like this opening scene hit really hard for me. Also, it's mentioned a little later that Spock has not seen his parents in four years. Yeah. And so the first thing (laughs) that he does is just get ignored, even though it's been four years. And even Amanda does not acknowledge Spock right away. I think it's mostly because she's swept up in the events taking place on the ship where she doesn't notice Spock immediately. And she's following Sarek's lead because he is the ambassador. But I was even surprised that she barely acknowledged him. Yes, exactly. I think that Amanda aspect came more from Sarek not wanting her to interact with Spock because even they're in engineering and Sarek is talking with Kirk aside from Spock, Amanda goes over to chat with him and Sarek is like, she who is my wife, come here. Like, you know, come hither. He holds up his little fingers. Like he is very, you can clearly tell that he's the quote unquote man of the house. There's these seemingly very traditional, traditional, I mean, in a human uh, 1950, 1960s, <laughs> not in a, I mean, in maybe a traditional Vulcan way. But anyway, we are seeing this dynamic where Sarek seems to have a lot of say in what Amanda does or doesn't do. But Amanda also is very good at- She's very independent. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that there is even some distance with Amanda in the beginning of this episode, which again, ow, for Spock, my heart just goes out to him. Also, the fact that Spock told no one about his parents. And I have a question about this. Do you think that it's because of his private nature, because of his guilt? What do you think about that? Like why he didn't tell anyone? Well, first of all, before I answer, I just have to say that in this episode, since we are only talking about the original series for Spock, we will not be diving into anything that happens with Michael and Discovery. Right. Yeah. I just want to say that off the bat because I think when we talk about this in Discovery, I might have a different answer for you. But for right now, we're keeping it the original series and at a different date, we will talk about Michael. That's true. We're keeping Um, in mind that the writers don't even, no one knows about Michael. She didn't exist in this 
writing timeline. So, so. even though technically in canon we know about Michael, uh, the writers do not. So we're that's what we're respecting right now. Yeah. But anyway, I think that we are still seeing the maturity that Spock has to go through with coming to know himself and with his humanity. Over and over and over again, I think literally like four different times, we see Sarek talking to Spock saying, you are a child of two worlds, which path will you choose? He says this in the original series. He says this in the animated series. He says it also in 2009. Sarek loves telling Spock and reminding him that he's a human over and over and over again. I think Spock has joined Starfleet to run away. And I think we have to talk about his reasonings for joining Starfleet before we even talk too much about Sarek because Sarek was pushing for Spock to join the Science Academy on Vulcan because that's what you do when you're a serious Vulcan and you want to pursue a career. You join the Science Academy and that's what happens. But Spock, he is half human and he wants to explore Starfleet. And he's the first Vulcan to ever reject his entrance to the Vulcan Science Academy. Although, as he notes in Star Trek 2009, though I'm half human, your record remains untarnished. That really makes Sarek angry because he is on board. He works for the Science Academy. He's ambassador. Sarek has this huge important role and he has high expectations for his son to do something and to be as important as Sarek is in the Vulcan culture. So Sarek is furious with Spock for choosing this way. But I think my personal thesis (laughs) is that Spock not only chooses to join Starfleet because of a illogical um, human reaction, yeah, need to rebel from Sarek. I think that's that is part of it. I also think it's because growing up on Vulcan, Spock was treated horribly. Mm-hmm. Spock was treated like a half breed his whole life. In the animated episode yesteryear, the Vulcan children call him an Earther. As a form of slang, we see in Star Trek 2009, he's getting bullied. People are physically abusing him. And it's even talked about by Amanda in the episode Journey to Babel that the other Vulcans teased him growing up. So Spock is not welcomed on his planet. I think Amanda Grayson is the only one who shows him love anywhere on Vulcan. He clearly does not have friends he's close with. Sarek is not being nice to him. And so I think he leaves to GTFO to leave Vulcan because it's not been a place of happiness for him and he can't help who he really is. And so he's following his own path, even though that's not what everyone else expects of him. Yeah, I completely agree with this. I think that also because Spock is so multifaceted and there's so many different ways in which Spock's motivations push him in different directions. And I think it's very tragic that Amanda being the only person to show him love and he still cannot accept it because he chose to follow the ways of Vulcan. Amanda, during Journey to Babel, is telling him, you should learn to smile, Spock. And all of these little slight comments about how he should be more human, while Sarek is always pushing him to be more Vulcan. And so... Again, we're seeing this duality of being porn into two different directions. Within this, I think that also Spock did not want to fully abandon his human roots by not taking the colonar, which is the ceremony to purge all emotion, and by joining Starfleet. I think that, yes, it was his 
irrational human need to rebel. It was everything you said about not fitting in on Vulcan, but I think it was also his only way he could honor his mother because he couldn't show her open love. He couldn't show her open affection. And even in even in the naked time, he admits that he could never tell her that he loved her, but that he was also ashamed of her. It breaks me and he's embarrassed by her emotions. Mm. I think that so much of what Spock is dealing with constantly are guilt, shame, and embarrassment. And those are all so very human emotions that it's really hard for him to reconcile even who he can be when his father's telling him to be one thing, his mother's telling him to be another, and he has to find some sort of middle ground. I think as a genius move, he chose Starfleet because like, he's going to be one of the first Vulcans. No, you know, I mean- there are still Vulcans. There was T'Pol technically and all of that. But like, as far as we know, Spock is breaking well, out of tradition. I'm sorry. Isn't he the first member of Starfleet though? Like, cause I, I yeah. no, maybe he's just the half first half Vulcan. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure like what his, like, cause there was yeah, now walking around. Now that I'm thinking about it, there should have been other Vulcans in Starfleet to pull in Enterprise. She's just a part of the Vulcan. Yeah. She's not a part of Starfleet until. I don't even know if she ever joins, technically. Yeah, it's kind of like a... Like a Kira situation. Like I was just thinking a Kira situation where a different government is joining Starfleet with similar ranks. Yeah, interesting. But I, Spock, Spock is yeah. definitely the first half Vulcan, so he's breaking that ceiling. <laughs> this is so many emotions for him to reconcile, and... I also want to mention that, yes, he hasn't seen his parents in four years, but he also hasn't spoken to Sarek for 18 years, is what Amanda tells us in Journey to Babel. And so that is a long time to not speak to your father. I do excessive research about Vulcan culture. I know quite a bit about it. There are different types of Vulcan bonds. There's the Thyla bond, which is like the lover or brother bond. But then there's also the parental bond. I don't know what it's called. Things are hard to pronounce in Vulcan. <laughs> but you're born with this bond with your family and this um, connection. And I'm sure it works differently for Amanda, just as like it would for a human marrying any kind of Vulcan. But he still probably has this parental bond with Sarek. I'm just wondering if that's been cut off, if that's been like put up barriers, you know, and how all of that would work mentally for them. Yes, you have to be telepathically fairly close to someone to feel a stronger bond, but you can still have those long bonds even from other planets. To think that he hasn't spoken to Sarek for 18 years must mean that they have little or no bond to speak of. For Vulcans, especially in that culture, those bonds are very important. It's something that you can deeply share with somebody. It's very devastating. And Amanda says, like, you are at home nowhere except Starfleet. He never felt like he was at home. Just like you said, Ashlyn, he was bullied and he was teased for something he cannot control. And I think that's where Spock's guilt is most prevalent is on things that he is physically incapable of controlling. It's a lot of what people deal with for racism or like internalized homophobia. You know, there's these things where you can't control something about yourself, but people still put attributes on you. They stereotype you. They bully you to a point where you feel that internalized guilt. And I think that Sarek is a huge part of that. And even to an extent, Amanda, I really like Amanda as a mom. And I think that she's trying her best, but honestly, like she's also pushing Spock to be something that he isn't. And it makes it harder for him to reconcile those two parts of himself. Wow. <laughs> I need a breather after that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man, what a beautiful choice that Spock makes by joining Starfleet. Because with all of the skill you're talking about and everything that he's experienced in his life, this seems like it would be so easy to turn to hatred and turn into something really negative and do something really bad with your life. Like Spock could have turned to drugs or I don't know. Like, um, just yeeted to like a... Just, you know, so right into the sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he is so dedicated to becoming a part of the Vulcan culture and a huge part of that and everything that Sarek instills in him is to become greater than yourself and to make a difference in the world around you. And that's exactly what Spock does. But he chooses the nicest people he knows to be around, which is humans, because yeah. his mother showed him kindness while he was growing up. I cannot personally speak to the experience of being mixed race, but I think that this is sort of the angle that Roddenberry and the writers of Star Trek were utilizing to talk about Spock is the duality of being of two cultures. I've read a couple books from people who are mixed race, and essentially they say that it's it's tough because each culture doesn't accept you for being fully one thing or the other. And so I think we see that on Earth too. Like he's called a Vulcan on Earth, but he's called a human on Vulcan, you know? And so it's just got to be really tough to even know who you are in the midst of all of this when everyone's telling you what you should be. And I know that Vulcans are taught not to care about what people think and all of that. And I'm sure that Spock built up those barriers through the years. But like as a child, especially as a, especially a half human child, where it's harder to control your emotions and your reactions than it is for a Vulcan child, it's just got to be really tough. I'm thinking about this and please stop me if you think it doesn't belong in this family podcast. But when I think about why Spock was created, as you mentioned with Roddenberry, I think one reading you can get from Spock is that he represents the common man, and I do mean man, like as as a human, like as me, as Ashlyn watching Star Trek, Spock represents a common man who is fighting to figure out what to do with his emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think that Spock is such a beloved character by both males and females because this is what we're all dealing with, isn't it? Aren't we all trying to figure out what to do with our emotions yeah. and and how to internalize them and how to deal with them? For someone like me, I really relate to Spock because I tend to shove down my emotions and deal with them later. Spock is learning from his father. And I think what lots of young men learn from their fathers or what people learn from their parents is to shove it down and to not show any emotion and don't cry and be a man and yeah. be strong. I think that's what Spock is trying to do. And that's what he's trying to do with Sarek his whole life. But Amanda is saying, it's okay to smile. It's okay to cry. It's okay to show your vulnerable side. Just like as we're growing as humans and as a civilization, it is okay for men to express their feelings. And in fact, the world becomes better when men express their feelings. Mm. That's just something I've been thinking about. I mean, I have no idea what went into creating the character of Spock, but I just think that he is so beloved by everyone. Everyone knows what it's like. We've all been outcast or, or bullied for something. We're all different in some way. None of us really truly fit in. Yeah. And Spock is the character that embodies that. So I think the reason why we're obsessed with Spock and the reason why we're going to end up talking for an hour about Spock <laughs> is because we relate so much with him. 
Yeah. Ex- thank you for saying that, Ashlyn. I think it absolutely belongs in this podcast yeah, and okay. yeah. it's a part of his upbringing and it's a part of how parents shape you to be a certain way. I think that you are exactly right about the sort of stiff upper lip Vulcan male culture that you have to go to. I mean, they don't even get to talk about Pon Far, even amongst each other. It is a literal intrinsic thing in the society. It actually kind of reminded me of how the topic of your period is very still taboo. Yes, yes. Women usually talk to each other about their periods, but you talk to a man about your period. And and I'm not trying to generalize, but a lot of men I know just freak out and don't know (laughs) what to do about it, you know? Literally half the world has periods. Yeah. yeah. And and on Vulcan, every male goes through Ponfar and no one talks about every it. It's a great reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And also yeah. we see in the episode yesteryear that uh, young Vulcan males have to go through the Kazwan, which is a trial of surviving in the harsh Vulcan climate. That's another thing, sort of like, I'll make a man out of you, toughen up. <laughs> and it's it's just seems very toxic in the culture. And as much as I revere and respect Vulcan culture. I also think that it has its limitations and that not every Vulcan can thrive in that environment, just like not every human can thrive in like a tough love environment. You know, everyone learns how to function in different ways. And so much of that has to do with how you're raised and how parental figures in your life sort of shape you and teach you. And I just think that Spock was taught to be tough, especially because he was half human. So like he had sort of a quote unquote strike against him, which means he had to work twice as hard to get to the very minimum of respect that w- that the Vulcans push on him. I think also it does not help Spock's perspective that the only person who's being emotional around him is his mother, because I think that furthers the stereotype in his mind that females are weak and emotional. Yes. Oh. And even in Journey to Babel, I did not like this part, but at the end of the episode, Sarek and Spock are both playing down the fact that Spock was really heroic and saved Sarek's life because it was logical, blah, blah, blah. But Amanda's like, oh, you love each other. And Spock and Sarek both say, oh, your mother is so emotional. And he's like, yes, mother, you're emotional today. They they say she's emotional. They act like she's not even in the room. They talk about her like she's this object of just emotion. And that's the only time where they're bonding. I think it's kind of, it's pretty toxic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I did not like that part of the episode. I think about how toxic and how stressful it must have been for Amanda to be living on Vulcan her whole life. And no matter what kind of independence she had on Earth, she is now the wife of a diplomat and of an ambassador who's very important in the scheme of history. And being a mother and trying to relate to your your child in the middle of all of this, who's half human and has all of these burdens and expectations on him, I just, I feel a lot of love for Amanda and I feel a lot of love for Spock who was never given the tools to express himself. And when he was, it was through his mother, which is looked down upon anyway. Thank you for saying that, Ashlyn. I think it's so true. So I (laughs) want to bring up his birth scene that we see in The Final Frontier. Cybok chooses as Spock's secret pain the fact that he was born half human. And in this scene, we see Amanda giving birth in this cave. It's very primal. (laughs) Probably doesn't have an epidural, poor thing. <laughs> She's probably in the catcher gark. <laughs> um, the first thing that Sarek says when he holds his son is so human. And then he puts him down. Sarek, God. The thing then that wrecks me is we see Spock grow up, do, do his whole thing. And then in the Wrath of Khan, when they have his funeral, 
he is in the casket going away and Kirk gives his eulogy. And the last thing he says about Spock is that of all the souls I've ever encountered on this earth, his was the most human. Oh my God. And so these two contexts could not be more different and also could not describe Spock more. I'm sorry. That- I'm floored by this, Ashlyn. This is amazing. I know. I was definitely crying a lot when I yeah. figured this out. Oof. It it just it hits different. <laughs> it really does. Um, Spock has these long arcs where when we're first meeting him, he's just kind of he's tends to be more Vulcan, more robotic, less emotional. As he goes on and he is with humans more, and by the time we're at the movies and in Wrath of Khan, where he then pays the ultimate price and sacrifices himself he is as he's as close to human as he's ever going to be and i think he's at his best Mm -hmm. i think wrath of khan in his development he is the best spock he can be he knows himself really well in this movie and so then after he dies he's reset they do the same thing that they did when he was born they teach him from the vulcan the same vulcan computers and (laughs) he's 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 memorizing all these facts trained again in the vulcan way but they completely ignore his human side how do you feel how do you feel and spock does not know how he feels and his humanity is totally reset after search for spock and in the beginning of voyage home and Yes, by the time Spock Prime comes back in 2009 and meets with young Jim Kirk in the Kelvin verse, he is full Spock again. He yeah. is mature Spock who mm-hmm. knows who he is and knows what's going on. But to me, this message, Sarek thinks he's too human and Kirk thinks he's just the right amount of human. It tells me that the best Spock is when he's being himself and when both sides of him are cherished and and educated. Yes, thank you for yeah. saying that. I was going to add on that I don't think it's just his humanity that makes it better. It's finding that balance between it's both. both sides. Yeah, I love Spock's logical and analytical side. Who doesn't? Come yeah, on. he's the he's best. Amazing. I mean, even the way Kirk looks at him when he's like rattling off numbers, you know, like it's just, it's great. And we all love that part of Spock. But I think it is so important to see him emotionally mature because he's given the space to and he's not being confined into a certain box or a certain way. Oh, yeah, it's just, it, it really does make me happy to see his arc, but it's hard to watch along the way. Even in the episode yesteryear, when Spock goes back in time, he tells young Spock, you're going to go through some trials, you know, essentially. I mean, I don't know exactly how he says it, but he knows that his childhood is not a walk in the park. He knows that it's going to be really tough on him. He also knows that he's going to find his way and he's going to find Kirk and his crew and he's going to find Starfleet and become his full realized self because of that. And I just adore his arc. It's really great. In general, all of us struggle when we go through our teenage years because hormones are terrible and going through puberty is really stressful because you don't know what's going on with your body a lot of the time and everything is so heightened and so important. Everything just seems like You have the biggest stakes ever. Yeah, Yeah, very life or death situation. And so I love that scene when older Spock is talking to his younger self, preparing him. It makes me remember that the more that you grow up and discover about yourself, the easier life becomes 
because you begin to have a handle on who you are. Yeah, agreed. So Journey to Babel comes to a head when Sarek is hospitalized because of this condition and he's going to die unless he gets Spock's blood transfusion. This creates quite a dilemma for Spock because initially he's like, yep, I'll go do it. Like I'll give blood. And then Kirk is injured. He's stabbed. And so now Spock has to assume command of the Enterprise in this there's a murderer on the loose. There's a bunch of delegates on board. It's a very high pressure situation. I, I think this is Spock's worst nightmare. Literally. Again, we see a Star Trek character choosing their found Starfleet people over their blood family. I think for Spock, it is deemed the logical choice. The ship isn't destroyed, needs of the many, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and Classic Spock. Yeah, yeah. Classic Spock. But it comes at a price of this scene with Amanda. Amanda comes into Spock's room after Spock decides not to give blood to Sarek, so Sarek will die. Spock is torn between his duty to Starfleet and his duty to his family. I think that we've talked about how family does create a sense of duty, but Starfleet often (laughs) takes precedent for people like Spock. Amanda says, like, I remember when you were bullied and the human part of you was crying. Spock can't even look at his mother in this scene because he knows that he's making this immensely difficult choice, something that will probably haunt him forever if Sarek did end up dying. Amanda tells Spock that she will hate him for the rest of her life if he doesn't go through with this. And isn't that just a slap in the face? And then Amanda literally slaps him in the face. It's this horrible scene. I just really, like, Amanda's being physically abusive. She's being verbally abusive. But she's scared of losing Sarek. I'm feeling like she could lose Spock along the way. And she can't really see past her fear of losing her husband. Because clearly her and Sarek are very close. I can tell that they have a strong bond. It's her grief and her fears manifesting in this like pretty toxic way towards Spock. She's trying to sort of quote unquote snap Spock out of it and make him make this choice to save his father. But I don't know. What did you think about this scene? Oof. Yeah, I struggled with this scene too. I just feel bad for Spock. What a terrible situation he's being put into. I do feel like it's a classic parent situation because I've had family come and visit me when I'm working and they all want to talk and hang out with me, but then I have to work. (laughs) I have to run and do my duty. And so I can't imagine having these high of stakes and your mom is saying, um, come on, buddy. Your priorities are your father, not your job right now. A job is a job and you're literally like but mom (laughs) it's literally so important Um, when lives are at stake for the crew as well amanda's blinders are on when it comes to sarek and i think it does not help that she's been living on vulcan for so long and i think she's entirely dependent upon sarek because if he dies what will happen to her position then she's just a mother you know and she has no career for herself She, I assume, has friends on Vulcan, but basically her way of life is totally torn apart if he dies, and then she's just a widow. Mm. And I think that for her, I mean, obviously it's high stakes. Nobody wants their significant other to die. No one wants their family ripped apart. But I think because this is everything to her, she does not understand why it's not everything to Spock as well. But Spock does have a separate life outside of his family. Yes, exactly. It's not his number one priority. I'm wondering what you think, Rihanna, because in this dilemma of what does Spock do in this situation, I am totally on Spock's side. And as hard as that is to say, if you 
are in charge of this diplomatic meeting where you're already worried about someone being murdered on the ship, it further complicates it that Sarek is such an important part of this delegation. It's such a complex scenario. For that, I think that Spock knows that Sarek would understand, and he even says, Father understands that this is the most logical choice to sacrifice his life for the good of the crew. And I think that Spock has always wanted his father's approval. It's a deep part of him. (laughs) And so when he is facing this decision, he is probably deeply thinking about like, well, what would my father do if our situations were reversed? He is psyched that he can finally do something that his father will approve of. Yeah, this is Even if it means letting him die. Yeah, it's wild, but this is like the only time where they agree. I just think that's last part of the scene when Amanda leaves and Spock just places his hand on the door and just takes a moment to grieve is just devastating. Thank God that Kirk was able to get up from a stab wound and run a ship. Just for Spock, which also shows how much he cares for Spock. (laughs) Pseudo father-in-law, as I like to think of it. Thank God that Kirk was able to step in and have Spock end up giving the blood because Kirk doesn't believe in no-one scenarios, so he's going to make it work uh, for the sake of his family and his crew. I see this as an example of It Takes a Village. More than ever, I think the original series has a much tighter family dynamic than some of the other shows in Star Trek. And there's just something about the chemistry with those actors and with the whole crew. No matter how advanced your replicators are, they will never replicate the original series. And I know this is not a retrospective on Journey to Babel, but this episode is just so important to Spock's timeline. That's why we're talking about it so much. The way that they get out of this scenario is by sticking together and using teamwork. McCoy and Kirk come up with a plan because they know Spock really well. Even though Spock doesn't know the best thing to do, McCoy and Kirk do. And so- they help him and then he successfully saves Sarek and the Enterprise is fine. They find who the murderer is and everything works out. But it's only because of the cooperation of everyone else in this senior officer group. Even Scotty comes in for a second and Kirk, even when he's like stabbed, he's like, oh, get Scotty. And then, you know, the aliens are coming closer oh and he's God, like, never mind. Yeah, I love that. Spock's family is not living up to his expectations. Mm-hmm. We see that Kirk and McCoy are stepping up in their place and they are getting it done for Spock and they're helping him where his family and his mom is refusing to. Yeah, and even in the beginning, Kirk is showing Spock off. He's like bragging about Spock to Sarek to try to try to heighten him in Sarek's eyes a bit. So they're all supporting each other and lifting each other up, like you said. And I just, I really, ugh, it just makes my heart so happy to see the three of them work together in that way. Me too. I want to go back to yesteryear. I have a kind of crazy theory (laughs) that I thought about last night while I was watching some clips from 2009. Okay. So everyone hold on to your bootstraps. Here's what I think. So in the animated series yesteryear, the Guardian returns from Sitting on the Edge of Forever. I believe it's the same Guardian as far as I know. A Guardian of Forever. And somehow the past has changed and so no one knows who Spock is. And there's this Andorian who's taking his place. And the Andorian is totally fine with Spock changing the past because he says it's all for family and Andorians are all about family. Which I just thought was a hilarious little thought uh, and it fits right into our series here. That even Andorians are all about family. But anyway, so Spock goes back in time and he has interactions with Sarek and with his younger self and with Amanda. Now, when Spock is back in time, 
things continue to happen that don't happen the same way that they do in his memory. So just by Spock's presence of coming back in time, he has somehow changed the timeline. I think that he jumped to a different universe in the Guardian. I think he jumped to the Kelvin timeline, which had already been created because Kirk and Spock are roughly the same age. So Kirk, you know, his father had already been killed in the accident with Nero. And so I think he is in the Kelvin verse at that time. And that is why things do not go exactly the same because the universe is still showing effects from the death of George Kirk and from Nero and Spock coming back in time, old Spock. There's, they never talk about the strange things that change in yesteryear. There's never a resolution. The biggest thing that's different is we mentioned before, and Spock tells Sarek that the only repayment I want for saving young Spock's life is for you to try and understand your son. Which is a great thing to say to your dad in the past. (laughs) Um, um, Another quote that I thought was great from that episode is young Spock says to old Spock, father wants me to do things his way and mother agrees with him. And then old Spock says, you are embarrassed in seeing her emotions and then recognizing them in yourself. And then Spock continues to say, Vulcans do not lack emotions. We have them and do not let them control us. Those are very great quotes. It's just noteworthy because then when we see Star Trek 2009, that Sarek is remarkably nicer to Spock than we've seen Sarek in the past. He's very gentle with him when he's a kid. So after Spock is being bullied at school. Sarek eerily has a similar line. Emotions run deep within our race, in many ways more deeply than in humans. Logic offers a serenity humans seldom experience. They control a feeling so that they do not control you. And I know that this is what Vulcan parents just tell their sons, but come on. It's it's pretty much exactly what Spock told his younger self. I I think it's it's interesting that Sarek is being much more understanding of Spock in this timeline. And I think it would make sense that when Spock is pulled into the black hole with Nero at the beginning of the movie, he would be drawn back to a universe which he had already visited. They meet again. Young Spock from yesteryear, I believe, is is Zachary Quinto in 2009. (laughs) Anyway, so that's that's just my thought. That theory blew me away like I completely I think it's canon I believe it I also think that because Sarek is so kind in 2009 like it really does sort of show a difference than Sarek's attitude towards Spock in the prime timeline and the fact that when Amanda dies in 2009 Spock and Sarek have a really lovely bonding moment and I think again just like with George Kirk dying in the beginning of 2009 with Amanda's death that grief sort of brings out a different side of people and I think that it brings out a different side of Sarek as well uh, when discussing it with Spock he says like you once asked me why I married your mother and he before had given the excuse like it was the logical thing to do but now he's saying it was because I loved her and showing that outward emotion is like a huge game changer for Spock because he's finally seeing his father accept an emotional side of him Spock then is I think given more allowance to be to, to talk about his emotions even if it's just a tiny bit you know that really makes a huge difference yes I think that we see a much more emotionally mature Spock. He's he's matured earlier in the Kelvin timeline because he has to deal with this horrible loss of losing mm-hmm. his mother so early. And his planet. I, I think in the prime timeline, as we've mentioned, Spock, McCoy, Kirk, 
they all join Starfleet to escape their families. Yeah. And in Journey to Babel, the reason that episode is so interesting is because Spock's past finally catches up to him and we see the consequences of it. In 2009, his past rushes up to meet him and he's forced to deal with it immediately. I can't imagine losing your planet. <laughs> that no. just oh can't. I mean, yeah. hopefully we never have to relate. Come on, climate scientists. <laughs> we sort of consider the animated series to just be a goofy addition to the Star Trek universe. But this episode, really gorgeous. It's so well done. And in the beginning, when the timeline has changed, we hear that young Spock died during his Kazwan trial and that no one was there to save him because Spock was in another part of the universe at that point in another timeline. In effect of that, Amanda and Sarek were separated after the death of Spock. And then Amanda dies in a shuttle accident. And so that, of course, makes Spock even more determined to set things right because he loves his mother and he doesn't want to live in a timeline where she's died, which you know makes 2009 all the more difficult to think about. But also, it just interests me that Sarek and Amanda split up after Spock's death. This is actually a sadly fairly common thing that happens with parents. Uh, the grief of losing a child drives them apart. But I also wondered if Spock was one of the things that really kept them together all these years. I, I don't know how you feel about their relationship. Ashlyn, you talked a bit about how if Sar or if Amanda lost Sarek, she would just sort of become this like widow and everything would change. So I just wonder, do you think it was their grief that brought them apart? Or do you think that they would have separated just because they were only staying together because of Spock? Oh, it's such a good question. I, oh, I mean, it could be a combination. I, yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know. Uh, because I see they have such strong chemistry in Journey to Babel, and they seem like they are one of those couples that you just know will go the distance. Yeah. And so it's hard for me to imagine them splitting up. But if your son dies, that's just unbelievably painful mm -hmm. and impossible to deal with. I, I don't know. What do you think, Rihanna? I think that it was mostly their grief because like just the devotion, even that Sarek has for Amanda and all of these different iterations and episodes we see of them, it's different. Their marriage does. And yeah. I do think it was mainly based off grief that they separated. So Spock goes back in time. And another thing I wanted to talk about was the tutoring and mentoring that young Spock delivers to little baby cute Spock <laughs> from the past, who is adorable, by the way. He says to Spock about his emotions and about being half human, he says, it is not fatal. And I just think that was a beautiful and perfect thing to say to him. Show like, you will get through this. This will not kill you. Like this is not going to be like this forever. And it's kind of the there's life after high school <laughs> mentality. Things are going to get better and things are going to change. One more thing I wanted to add about this was our sweet Aichaya, the mm. pet Shilat that Spock has. They actually mentioned in Journey to Babel. McCoy's all pumped that it's a teddy bear. <laughs> but, you know, it's a living creature with six-inch fangs who is just the sweetest. I actually kind of thought about how Aichaya seems to be similar to how Hedwig is for Harry and Harry Potter. This creature who really cares about him just because, just because he's him and not for any of these ulterior motives, not for family duty. Aichaya is loyal because he loves Spock. And I just really, I love that he follows Spock into the desert when Spock is trying to prove himself. And over and over again, we see this notion that Spock is always trying to prove himself. Even at a young age, he's trying to start his Kazwan early. He's trying to make sure he'll be ready because he doesn't want to put shame on his father. He doesn't want to embarrass his mother. And he he also wants to show that 
even as a half human, he is still just as strong as the other full Vulcan children. Aichaya just follows him. Spock is like, no, Aichaya, go back. <laughs> and Aichaya just doesn't care. He's like, nope, I'm coming with you. Sadly, this is what brings on Aichaya's death. Both young Spock and present Spock lost Aichaya on that same day. It just hurts a little bit, you know, because Aichaya saved Spock's life and uh, then Spock saved Spock again. They all sort of were saving each other again, sort of taking this village mentality of like, we all help each other and care for each other. I just, I think it was a beautiful show of loyalty and devotion from Aichaya and honestly, a very underrated pet in Star Trek. Like, why don't we talk about Aichaya? more because he's amazing. I agree. I love Aichaya. And it is really devastating to see adult Spock dealing with Aichaya's death. And he even does a mind meld with him to ease the pain and to say that he will be okay. It's a very tender moment that I love seeing with adult Spock and Aichaya. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. A couple more things because this episode yesteryear is so rich in talking about Spock's childhood. I think that first of all, there are moments where Spock truly does seem like he is sort of oppressed by the family values and his peers because he says in the family all is silence and that just really Mm. makes it feel like he was never given a space to talk and even just talk about his day or like what did you do at Mm. school today hun like how many computers did you talk to (laughs) like how many questions did you answer I think that must have been really hard to have to live in an environment where you can't express yourself. And I think it would be quite a different and harrowing experience to see yourself be bullied from afar, you know, to be sort of disembodied from that moment, but still remember it so clearly must have put a whole different perspective on Spock's childhood. But it probably also gave him the motivation to tell young Spock, it is not fatal, you will get through this, all of these lovely things he was saying to him. Also, I do think it's fascinating how Sarek treats adult Spock when he Mm -hmm. says, oh, I I am cousin Selick. I'm just passing through. And Sarek is very polite to him and is very welcoming and incredibly hospitable to him. He says, please stay with us as long as you want. You have a long journey ahead. And he totally respects him and has no idea that he's half human. So Spock is passing you know, as a full Vulcan to his own father. Yes. And and so I think Spock also finds some empathy into his father's perspective when he's there as an adult because he's able to see what Sarek is going through and then how he is putting it on to young Spock. And so I think that is a beneficial, if not shocking thing to go through because you get to see both perspectives much more clearly. Yeah, I kind of disagree Mm. Uh, I really respect this idea of this, but I think that when Spock sees the way that Sarek treats him versus how he treats his son, which technically they're both son, but like treats the quote unquote figure of Selick, I think that Spock is reminded painfully how he has never been enough for Sarek. That young Spock is being berated by Sarek for pretty much being bullied. He says, you should not be in these situations. And he apologizes to Selick, to old Spock, for young Spock's behavior. And that's just got to feel like 
he has very little respect for Spock. I think it takes him back to these difficult memories. And he even said to Amanda, it is difficult for a father to bear nothing less than perfection for his son. And yep, I wrote that down too. Yeah. yeah. So he is expecting perfection from Spock at every turn. And I think that Spock is sort of having to relive this trauma of growing up in a household that is so strict and so demanding of him. And Amanda knows it's been difficult on Spock. She seems to have a lot of empathy about this, but Spock was never allowed to fail and he was given no reprieve from his father's demands and also his internal demands of himself. And that's why he tries to complete the cause one early and all of that. Present Spock is looking at his childhood from a way that shows his demons in this like outward way. It's kind of like if you put on a holodeck program of your worst couple days of your life and you have to watch through it, you know, that's got to be just really difficult. And I don't know if he respects Sarek's position. He might. And because he's good at uh, reconciling his position and understanding others. And so that's very possible. But I don't know. I just felt like this must have been a very tough excursion for him to go back in time and have to see this through the lens of his younger self very difficult and i agree with your point i i, agree I think with yours, though like i think it's yeah there. i agree with mine too but yeah <laughs> i agree with both mm-hmm. i also think it is so sad when baby spock runs to the healer's house to try to save Ichaya, and the healer thinks he's pulling a practical joke yeah even though he did that two years ago so spock is confronted with racism yeah. and xenophobia all the time and even when he's desperately pleading please help me please help Ichaya," this healer thinks that he's lying to him even though you know and as spock rightly brings up do you know the son of Sarek to be a liar and of course yeah. no one knows spock to be a liar exactly tough thing to go through. Really tough. And I think also it's very telling when Sarek says, oh, you're welcome back anytime, Selick. And he says, I shall not pass by this house again. I think both shows that he's not going to come back to this time again in his life, like not come back to the way that he used to be. But also he doesn't talk to his father for 18 years, you know, after they're falling out. And he doesn't return. I don't think, at least as far as we know, the only time he's returns to Vulcan in the original timeline is when he Voyage home, search for Spock. Bar, but he doesn't like even oh yeah parents aren't there for that you know and he only returns then yep search for spock and voyage home but that's out of necessity of getting his katra back (laughs) so like his literal life not until his actual life depends on it does he return to vulcan and return to his house but at the same time there's this duality he said i am home now and i've almost forgotten its beauty I mean, family is complicated and it's multifaceted and Spock is showing how you can love something so much, but also not to want to return to it. And mm. I just, damn, like that scene really, or that episode really says so much about Spock. Yeah. And just so much about all of us too, and how both of those feelings can exist and it doesn't make it wrong. Exactly. Damn. And also thinking that it must have been very hard for Spock to see Cybok get taken away. And I mean, to an extent, Michael, I know we're not talking about her in this podcast, but like all his siblings are taken away from him in different ways. And so that's got to add a lot of abandonment issues to our poor child. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess let's briefly, briefly talk about Cybok. Um, Very long, but... I don't even know technically if Cybok is still canon, but there's a whole movie about him. The actor is younger than Leonard Nimoy. Lawrence Lawrence Luckinville is three years younger than Nimoy, but that's fine. (laughs) Whatever. It does say in the episode Sarek in Next Generation that Sarek's first wife was a Vulcan princess. Basically... 
Cybok is a half-brother who we never talk about until it's convenient. Yep. The only reason we know that they're related is that Spock won't kill him. And Kirk is mad that Spock doesn't pull the trigger in Final Frontier when faced Even with... Even when he learns that it's his brother. He's still yeah, he... But of, why would Spock kill anyone? You yeah, know, even if brother. over and over again, we see in Final Frontier that Spock does not join Cybok. And he tells him this about four times. Cybok keeps trying to take him in over and over and over again, but he never does. And it's because Spock knows that Cybok is off the rails and that he does not accept his philosophies. Yeah, there are two quotes that uh, I wanted to talk about in Final Frontier, and then I don't yeah. want to talk about Cybok anymore. But yeah. um, he says, Spock says to Cybok, I am not the outcast boy you left behind those many years ago. And left behind really implies that, yeah. what I was saying earlier, that Spock probably felt very abandoned by Cybok and felt like when Cybok turned away from Vulcan culture, when Spock had been working so hard to be Vulcan, that it must have felt like a heartbreak. Then Cybok says, after all these years, you finally caught up with me, implying that Spock was searching for him. And so I just wonder, like, of course, the movie is a bit chaotic and not written very well. And so it's hard to gleam how much of this impacted Spock in his adult life. But I do think that maybe sometimes he thinks about Cybok and wonders where he is and like hopes he's doing well and probably looked for him for the first maybe year or so after Cybok was gone. And it makes me sad to think that Spock was attempting to still grasp at different pieces of his family to try to keep it whole. It is sad and it's hard to think about. I am an older sibling. So <laughs> when I see another older sibling speaking, I know exactly what he means when he has that line of you finally caught up to me. I think that there's this unfortunate misconception about older siblings and Loki, it's true that we're the best and whatever we do sure. is right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we're changing the world yeah. and everyone, all the siblings should follow us. Oh, so you're telling me <laughs> in this situation? That's great. I love to be Spock in this yeah. situation. <laughs> I think their dynamic does bring out the little brother in Spock yeah. and I think it answers a lot of questions about Spock that I didn't know I had. He definitely fits the little brother left behind yes. archetype. And so I think when Cybok is talking about it, he is implying that, oh, I'm the big impressive man. I mean, they're both sons of Sarek. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, what Cybok is doing by abandoning the Vulcan way and going on his own is historic. And yeah. he didn't find God, but he he did breach the barrier yeah, in the center much- of universe. Yeah. I think it answers some questions about the sibling dynamics that that they must have had growing up on Vulcan before Cybok went away. And it says that they were six years apart. So that is kind of a big difference. Yeah. I'm sure Spock could never really understand who Cybok was growing up. And then by the time he was, he was gone. Mm. Ashlyn, I really liked that older sibling take. That really helped me to sort of think about <laughs> things in a different way. Like, thank you for that. Yeah, sure. I think also we've talked about how Spock grows up on Vulcan mm-hmm. pretty isolated because he doesn't have a lot of friends and all he knows are the ways of his people. And I can't help but think of it as a similarity to young Kirk and how mm-hmm. he grew up in Iowa and all he knew were the people around him and just how important it is for all of us as humans to take that big step and leave the place that you were born, even if it's just for a vacation or to move somewhere else 
it's important for us to leave our family units. That's the time often that we realize how important they are. I just want to note that Star Trek handles family in so many different ways. But what's fundamental about family is we will always have family in some capacity. And everywhere we go, we make the family that we need in order to keep surviving. This happens all the time in Starfleet. And this is honestly, the people who watch Star Trek surely can connect to the idea of we all want to contribute to something greater, which is Starfleet, no matter what our upbringing was. We want somewhere that's going to accept us no matter where we came from. Oh, Ashlyn, I think that was beautiful. (laughs) I have had a lot of thoughts already about the next episode, which will deal with the family dynamics in the next generation characters. And so that is going to be an even longer conversation than this one was. And so that's why we're breaking it into two chunks. Yeah. So next week will be part one of our next generation discussion. And then the week after that will be part two. We are just thrilled to be diving deeply into the crazy family dynamics of Star Trek and how similar or different they are to our own lives. And we want to thank you for taking this journey with us. Um, (laughs) I was going to make a Shakari joke, but I don't think I have it in me. (laughs) Seriously, though, this has been such a great beginning to this series, and I am absolutely thrilled to continue to follow this theme of family and to see where it takes us later on in Star Trek when the writing has changed and the formats have changed. And Ashlyn, as always, it has been amazing podding with you and I'm so lucky to have a sister like you. Yes, me too. It is great to be an older sibling, you know? It's just <laughs> so nice. <laughs> oh, <sure>. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, we'll see you next week for the Next Generation Family Edition. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters Podcast. Please join us next week for our second episode of the Family Series which will cover the familiar relationships of the next generation, including characters like Riker, Jordy, Picard, and the Crushers. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please check out our suggested watch list for this upcoming series. If you like what you've heard today, please give us five stars and leave a comment. If you would like to become a monthly patron, please join us on patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. Any amount per week will get you exclusive access to our reviews of the Lower Deck series, as well as friendly competitions between me and Rihanna. Our email is Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Our outro, Worf's Revenge, was written by Aurelio Voltaire. Why do Star Trek fans always expect a gift when going to a convention? It's because they called it the Enterprise.